Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we looked at a, a very, very challenging text in Matthew 16 and verse 24. Jesus said there, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we called that message the desire and the demand of discipleship. And we saw the desire for discipleship in that word would. It's a word that speaks of the will of what one wants. If anyone would come after me. And to come after Jesus is a way of saying to follow him, to be a disciple. And you remember that a disciple is a Christian. And the offer was open to anyone. If anyone would come after me, if you want it, then come, Jesus says. If you have the desire, then here is the way. If you want to be a Christian, you have to be one on God's terms. And that's really the whole thing, isn't it? You can't come after someone by going your own way. If you're a disciple of someone, you have to follow that person. You have to learn from them. They are the master and you are the disciple. They are the leader and you are the follower. And that's especially true in regards to following the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the teacher. And to come after him is really our own personal acknowledgement of his lordship. He is the teacher, we are the learners, and a disciple is one who learns, one who follows a master, one who learns from the master and seeks to emulate their life and their doctrine. And the demands of discipleship really flow out of the nature of discipleship. They are what they are because of the one that we follow. We are what we are as disciples of Christ because we follow this great master. If discipleship means following a master and patterning, patterning our life after him, which it does, then we need to ask, well, well, what is our master like? What kinds of things did he do? What kind of life did he live? And what kind of life will we have to live if we follow Jesus Christ? And that was Peter's problem in our context. You remember in verse 21, the Lord began to teach, and, and you could look at it there. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter didn't like that. And he began to rebuke the Lord, and he expected a, a victorious Messiah, not a suffering servant. And so Peter, for that brief moment, he was going to lead his leader, and he was going to teach his teacher, and he wanted to, to set the direction and disciple the Lord instead of being a disciple, but that's not the way. Jesus said that a student is not above his teacher. Matthew ten twenty four: a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant Above his master, verse 25 says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And so the Lord rebuked Peter sharply in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Lord, far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. And now the Lord 
turns to Peter in verse 23 and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then the Lord began to teach his disciples that not only would he suffer, but they also must follow him in that way of life. Not only would he die, but they also must take up their cross and be willing to die for his sake. Now, Jesus hasn't yet in Matthew revealed to his disciples that, that he's going to die on the cross, but he began to reveal to them that, that they would need to take up their cross, and he's beginning here now clearly to show that, that ultimately he's going to die. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has told the disciples to take up their cross and follow him. We saw that in chapter 10, and, and we see it again in, in our text here. Look at our text again. Let's read it. Matthew sixteen twenty four to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so the desire for discipleship was in that word would in verse 24, if anyone would. And the demand of discipleship was there in in those three commands in verse 24. Here's the way to follow Jesus. This is what one would do if, if one would follow him is number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his or her cross. And then number three, follow Jesus. And that was a continual thing, a continual following of Jesus Christ. And so we saw what the Lord requires of one who would follow Jesus. It's a denying self, a refusal to acknowledge the person we were before coming to Jesus. That person no longer exists. We're a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and the new person gives up their self. They give up their desires to serve Christ. And the Lord requires also that one take up his or her cross. And that involves in a, a literal sense, taking up the cross beam and being force marched through town to the place of execution. And for the 12 disciples who were there that day, there was likely a literal-ish sense to this thing. They were to be at least prepared to die for Jesus' sake. And we know from church history that Peter and Andrew and Philip were crucified. They literally did, at the end of their life, take up their cross and follow after Jesus. The exact fate of the other disciples isn't exactly clear in every case. And so there's something of a literal sense here. And of course, in a sense, though, they, they couldn't just take up their cross and, and, and carry it to their execution. So, because, you know, Rome would have to impose that on them. 
And so this must mean something along the lines of be prepared to die or, or live your life as though you were on your way to your execution. Have this mindset as though you were headed to death or follow the Lord's example of faithful service even to the point of death. And moment by moment, living that way would be a life of, of steady obedience, which would come close to a metaphorical idea of giving up one's life moment by moment, choice by choice to serve and honor the Lord. And finally, the final requirement is actually to follow the Lord. And that's, that's what we covered last week. And now we're going to see the reasons for following Jesus. And the Lord gives us in our text today, we're going to look at verses 25 to 27. The Lord gives us three reasons for following Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the, the heading in your outline this morning. Three reasons for following Jesus Christ. And these reasons are reasons to come after Him. They're reasons to deny ourselves. They're reasons to take up our cross. They're reasons to follow Him. And these are going to help us, in the words of verse 23, to set our mind on the things of God. And they're all tied to seeing Jesus for who He is at, and, and, and tied to an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective that looks beyond our life in this earth to a future life with Christ in glory. And each one of these kind of builds upon the next, going deeper and further into the comparison between this present world and the world to come, or or between now and eternity. And so we need to understand what our Lord lays out for us here. And if we don't grasp his reasoning, then we're not going to be able to do what he demands of us in verse 24. If we don't understand his reasoning, we're not going to be able to lose our life for his sake or to deny ourselves, or to take up our cross and follow him. And so these reasons are going to equip us to, and fortify us to pay the price of being true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so let's get into this then this morning in verse 25. We're going to see, first of all, in your outline, the extraordinary reversal. We called it the extraordinary reversal. And Jesus describes a a surprising transformation of expectations here. You see, one would expect that if they tried to save their life, they would save their life. And if you lost your life, it would result, result, it would result in losing your life. You know, to the natural man, to the unsaved person, if we want to say it that way, or even to our flesh, the worst thing that we could imagine is denying ourselves, taking up our cross and being martyred and losing the life that this person hoped to make for themselves. But Jesus promises that it will work out much differently than we would naturally expect. And so verse 25 is a promise, but it's a, a double-edged sword. There's two sides to this thing. There's a positive reversal for the one who loses his life for Jesus' sake. But there's also a negative reversal for the one who tries to save their life for their own sake. And so look at verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the extraordinary reversal. Now this is just slightly different than what we saw, and you could turn back there if you want to Matthew 
10 and verse 39. I think I pointed this one out last week as well. But Matthew 10, 39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Matthew 10, 39 speaks about finding life, whereas our verse has whoever would save his life. And saving here refers to keeping oneself from what Jesus described in verse 24. If you're going to try to save yourself from what Jesus described in verse 24, then this applies to you. You will lose your life. If you try to save your life and to not lose it for Jesus' sake, you will lose it in the end. Ultimately, you will lose it. And if you're back in Matthew 16 and look at verse 25, it says again there, for whoever would save his life. And that word would is the the word we already saw in verse 24. And it speaks of desires and purpose and will. And it refers here then to what we want. And we, so we need to ask ourselves then, what do we want out of life? What do you want out of life? Think about it. What do you want? What's your goal? What's your goal in life? What are you, what are you striving for? What are you desiring? And, and then ask more specifically, is your goal to save your life? Or is your goal to lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake? And as we think about that, I just turn to a parallel passage in Mark chapter 8. I think it's helpful to to see this one as well. Mark 8.35. Mark includes a little more of what, what Jesus said there. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so the addition there in Mark of and the Gospels, I think it's helpful as we think about the Gospel's sake, I think it helps us to, to recognize what Jesus means here. What does it mean to lose your life for his sake? It means to, to serve him in the Gospel. To serve him in, in reaching sinners and, and seeing them saved and then to, to see those same sinners grow to be like Jesus Christ. Which is really the, the work of the church together. And so we could ask then, you know, do you want to lose your life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then we could ask, well, how do we lose our life for Jesus and the gospel? Or even before that, we should ask, what is our life? And the word life here is, is the same word used in verse 26, which is translated soul. And it's a very broad word, and, and Jesus uses it in various senses in this section. The word soul can, can be used just to refer to the self. And so the ESV translates it, your life here, just yourself. And if you go to any psalm almost, you'll see that the psalmists talk about my soul. And in most cases, when they speak about my soul, they, they simply mean themselves. And to want to save the soul then would mean for us to want to save ourselves, save the person. But the soul also refers to the immaterial part of a person, the part that transcends the earthly existence, the part that lives on forever, the part of us that relates to and knows God. And so to lose our soul in the first part of verse 25 by trying to save our soul means making efforts to avoid the cost of following Jesus. 
And if we do that, we will lose our soul in the sense of losing the knowledge of God or losing our souls in hell. Or even before that, on the way there, losing out on the blessings of fellowship with God. But on the other hand, in the second part of verse 25, if we lose our life for Jesus' sake, if we lose our soul for his sake, that means that we give up our desires to serve him and we deny ourselves and we serve the Lord in the church that he is building and we seek to make his gospel known. And if we do that, the promise is that we will find our soul, we will find true life. Or as Jesus said in another place, we will have the abundant life. Now the word translated lose in both halves of this verse is a strong word. In some contexts it means to destroy or to ruin. And here the sense is to lose out on one what, on what one thinks he has. And, and, and what we have is our life and so we're going to lose his or her life, to lose one's soul, to miss out on eternal life. Now, this is a strong saying, but this is something that Jesus said over and over again. This isn't a one-time thing, and I just want to show you this. We already saw Matthew 10, 39. We already looked at Mark 8, 35, parallel passages. Luke 9, 24 says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 17, 33 says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I think I want you to turn to John chapter 12, and let's look at verses 24 to 26. John 12, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I think this passage in John is really helpful because we are not to love our life in this world. And a parallel idea here, I think, would would be close to the thorny soil in the parable of the sower. You remember in Matthew 13, 22, as for that which was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 1 John 2.15 warns us that we're not to love the world or the things in the world. And it goes on to say that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so if we live in this world, which we do, but we recognize that this world is what it is, and we don't allow the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches to choke out the word of God in our life, Or we don't pursue the world in such a way that it would keep us from following and serving Jesus Christ. And we serve him in this world 
almost, according to John chapter 12 there, almost to the place that we, we hate this world. And we almost, we could say that we almost hate our life, Jesus is telling us. We, we hate our life. But it's exactly at this moment that we're beginning to hate our life that, that this amazing, this extraordinary reversal happens. And so here comes this reversal as we give up our lives and deny ourselves to serve the Lord. All of a sudden we begin to realize that true joy is found in knowing and serving Jesus Christ. And as we give up our life for Him, we begin to find life and His promise is fulfilled. And what happens is that we have fellowship with Christ in His sufferings, which Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. And we follow Him and we find that He is with us and that, that where I am, there my servant be also. And so there's this this closeness and this fellowship with Jesus Christ as we live our lives for his sake. Commentator Leon Morris said this. It's a bit of a longer quote. He says, quote, He is referring to the person who loses his life for my sake, the one who puts the service of God's Messiah before all else, who counts all well lost for Christ's sake, and who consequently devotes all all his time to serving Christ and other people for Christ's sake. That person will find life. He now finds that the life he lived before giving up all for Christ was not really life at all. Full and abundant life is the life of service, the life in Christ, the life that takes anyone out of concentration on merely selfish concerns and puts ultimate meaning into life. End quote. Now, I think a, maybe a, a helpful illustration of this principle is the man Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, we meet Epaphroditus. He was, he was sent by the Philippians to minister to Paul while Paul was in prison. And in Philippians 2, 25 to 30, it says this. <clears throat> Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so we see really both Paul and Epaphroditus, Paul in prison and Epaphroditus really risking his life to go and, and minister to Paul and then caring so deeply about the Philippians. Now, we're not going to exactly be in this kind of same situation as Epaphroditus. We're, we're not going to be sent to support and comfort missionaries like Paul. But I, I think for us, it's, it's helpful as we think about what this means in our own individual lives to just recognize that word in our text that Jesus says where he says, for my sake. You see, whatever we do, we should do for Jesus' sake. 
And our lives should be focused around him and around his church. And even our necessary rest, which is necessary at times, should be rest so that we can better serve him in our jobs and in our families and amongst our brothers and sisters. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I think that's really the idea here, that our lives are focused on Jesus Christ and serving Him. And every aspect of our lives should be done for Him and to Him as an act of worship. And when we do that, when we give up our lives for him, we're going to find that the highest and the fullest and the best life that we can have is in losing our life for his sake. But we shouldn't miss the warning on the other side of this as well. If we don't give up our lives for his sake, we will lose our lives. We will lose our souls. And again, Jesus had said that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And that's the extraordinary reversal. The one who's going to save his life is going to lose it. And that's something that we need to take very seriously. But next, Jesus goes into really the most extreme example. And let's imagine then that that you could save your life in this world. Let's just kind of go a little deeper in the logic now. And let's just imagine you could save your life in this world. And let's go even further and let's imagine that you could gain the whole world. And now you don't have to deny yourself. And you can keep your life. And on top of it all, you can even gain the whole world. Let's think about it. Would it be worth it? And Jesus kind of turns now to the the language of economics. And so I called this the economic recognition, verse 26, uh, 26 of our passage. It says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now notice again the word for at the beginning of this verse and, and at the beginning of all of these verses. This is... Another reason to follow Jesus. Commentator D.A. Carson said, the logic is relentless. And it really is in this passage. The logic is relentless. I really like that. The, the Lord uses two rhetorical questions to drive home his point. And both of these use the marketplace language or accounting type language. And we're talking about profit and loss. That, that word there in verse 26 at the end of it, in return for his soul, is, is a word that speaks about cha- trading or exchanging things. And so let's think about profit first. Again, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now the word profit here means to help or aid or benefit. And it's in the passive voice, so the idea is, what is the benefit or, or what is gained? What good would it be? What good would it be if, if this thing happened, if someone gained the whole world? And gained here means to acquire, to acquire by effort or to qu- acquire something by an investment. And the gain in this case is the highest imaginable amount. It's really an impossible amount. The whole world. And the genius of our Lord is, is really on display in this section. 
See, there's a hesitancy for us to, to go all in and following him. There's maybe a, a hesitancy on behalf of some to pay the cost. We don't, we don't want to lose our lives in this world. It, again, it's natural. We, we just don't want to do it. We want to find our life. We want to, we want to save our life. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to lose your life. There, there's one way of salvation, and it's by following the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so Jesus then takes us to the best possible case for the one who would find their life or save their life. Imagine that you had the whole world. And seriously, I, I want you to try to imagine that you have the whole world. Imagine it with, with me now. And it's really hard to get there, I, I find, like, because let's just start with houses. And, and you can kind of go through and, and okay, I own every house in Lacrete. And then you go, okay, now I own every house in Slave Lake. And now I own every house in Edmonton. And now I own every house in Calgary and Alberta and Canada. And there's like a whole other side of the world yet beyond that. And then go to vehicles and, and just take your, your dream vehicle and you got one of those. And then, then you got every one of those that was ever made in every place. Every vehicle in Canada, every vehicle in the world and airplanes and whatever is. And then think about hobbies and things that you like. I like, you know, you guys know I like fountain pens. I, every fountain pen. You know, some of you guys are some, you know, think that's ridiculous and, and you can fill your own thing in, but, but all the hobbies. And, and now you own everything in the world and we could go through each area. We could look at the wardrobe and your shoes and your accessories and, and whatever there is out there and, and it's all yours. Now, perhaps at first some of you are going, that'd be great. That'd be great. I could really enjoy all those things, but, but you know, I think, at least if you're a believer, you know that that's not going to satisfy your soul. And you're going to get to the end of that and there's nothing else because you have it all. You see, the whole world or any portion of it can't give you the joy that is found in knowing Jesus Christ. And I hope you know that. God has given us all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, 17, but, but ultimate enjoyment is really a gift from Him and only God can give us contentment with the things that we have. But even if you could find some enjoyment in the world and you could have all of it or, or at least if, if you could have as much as you wanted, how would it compare to your soul? You know, how long could you have the whole world for? 50, 60 years, you know, I think 80 years. By the time you're getting to 80 years, the, the level of enjoyment that you're going to get out of the whole world is starting to kind of lose. You know, you're just like, give me a, give me a, a pain free back or whatever, whatever your situation is by 80 years old. Maybe you live to 106 and, and, and you can, you know, think for a little bit, but, but after a while, you, you're going to, you're going to be too old to enjoy the world. And then after that, you're going to die. But even if you had a thousand years, what is that compared to eternity? You see, in the end, even if you had the best in this world, if you forfeit your soul, it's, it's really not worth it. And we've already seen that unless you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will forfeit your soul. But now Jesus goes to the other side of the equation. If gaining the whole world is not worth the loss of the soul, 
then what is the value of the soul? What would it be worth as a, uh, you know, what would be worth it if we could kind of pay a price in exchange for our soul? How much would we be willing to pay? Verse 26, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And again, in return is the language of trading in the market. It's an exchange. What would you give? What's the amount? If you could exchange something for your eternal soul, for eternal life, how much is it worth? And of course, this is a rhetorical question. There's, there's really no answer, or, or maybe we should say that, that the answer is self-evident. Nothing would be too much to save your life. Our souls are worth everything. They're worth more than the whole world. No price would be too great. And so if we're thinking clearly, we would gladly pay any price or any cost in exchange for our soul. Again, our soul is eternal. Our life in this world is temporary. Another way to see the value of our soul is to look at the price that Jesus paid to redeem our souls. Redeem is another word from the marketplace. And in reality, we could, we could really never exchange anything for our souls. We can't buy our souls. To keep with the economic theme, we could say that the debt is too great. We can't afford to pay the penalty of our sin. Because of our sin, we owed an infinite payment. Our sins had earned for us the wrath of God. And the punishment for that was death, eternity, and hell for the infinite offense against a holy God. And the only payment that we can make to cover our sin is to be punished in hell forever. No good deed or no amount of good deeds can take away sin. And as sinners, even our best deeds are marred by sin and only add to the wrath of God that is owed us. And that's why redemption is only available through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that paid the price for our sin. The cost of our redemption was an exchange. It was one man in the place of another, or one man in the place of many. And the Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. He earned a perfect righteousness for us. The cost of our souls was the Son of God given for us. And if we truly believe this, that then we are saved and our sins are forgiven and we are justified by faith, which means that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us and counted as though it was ours. But this faith, if we truly believe this, this faith also results in love for the one who bought us. As Jesus said in Luke 7, the one who is forgiven much loves much. And so when we recognize by faith the love of God for us in Christ, we desire to live our lives for his sake. One of my favorite verses on that is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 where Paul says the love of Christ controls us. And so Paul thinks about the, the love of Christ as he thinks about his mission and his, his mission in the world and his, his missionary kind of status and all of the, the difficulties of ministry. What, what moves Paul? What drives Paul? It's the love of Christ. And he says we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so the love of Christ 
moved Paul to give up his life for Christ, and it should also move us to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised. Now, the reason that Jesus died for us, or one of the reasons, is so that we would no longer live for ourselves. And the logic of our passage goes something like this then, and we're back in Matthew 16 here. The logic of our passage passage goes something like this. If we value our precious souls and we would not lose them, then we must take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. We must deny ourselves and lose our lives for his sake. And really nothing else makes sense. Nothing else makes sense. The whole world would not be enough to choose otherwise. No cost is too great. Plus, we already saw in verse 25, if we do lose all for him, that he promises that we will find true life in him. Now, before we leave this section, let me just point out the dangerous reasoning that, that looks for some kind of a middle way here. Jesus is laying out what it takes to follow him. But we in our sin, we think kind of like this sometimes, don't we? What's the minimum losing of life that I can do without forfeiting my soul? Or what's the maximum saving of my life? And what's the maximum enjoyment of this world and of my life in this world that I can have without losing my soul? But we should really be thinking very much the opposite of that. We should be thinking the opposite way and heading the other direction and saying, how can I serve the Lord better? Or how can I bring him more glory? How can I honor him more in this world, this one who gave his life for me? And any attitude really less than that is dangerous and contrary to what our Lord lays out here. Again, if anyone would come after me, this is the way, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, the third reason to follow Jesus, not only do we have the, the economic recognition here that the, the, the value of our soul and, and the, the uselessness even of gaining all in this world, but now we go number three and we see the eternal reward in verse 27. The eternal reward. Now, the other two have already hinted at the eternal mindset here. That we need to have an eternal mindset if we're going to follow Jesus. But this one brings it really to the forefront. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And this is a fantastic reason to follow Jesus and to set our minds on the things of God. Jesus is coming again. The first time he came, he came to suffer and die. And then he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But he's coming again. He's coming again. And this time he's coming as king. And he's coming to destroy his enemies. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to come and reward his people for their service to him in the midst of this wicked world. The Lord here is summarizing what is going to happen at the end of the age in, in one brief sentence. Sometimes we think of, of a coming uh, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, where we who are alive are going to be caught up with the Lord in the air. And according to John 14, 2 to 4, Jesus says this, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
or sorry, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And so there's this this coming of the Lord where he's going to bring us to dwell with him where he is and where is he right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And so there's this, this coming of Christ to the, to meet his saints in the air and, and to take them back to heaven with him. And it would seem that this coming is connected to the seven year tribulation and the pouring out of God's wrath on the earth so that we're going to be rescued from God's wrath. We who are alive when Christ returns will, will go back to dwell with him in these mansions that he's prepared for us and, and be delivered from the wrath of God that is poured out on the earth during the tribulation. And we'll then return with Christ in this official second coming when Christ returns to earth. But no matter how we understand all the elements of, of the eschatology here, these comings of Christ, the, the coming of Christ we know that when he comes, he is going to come and judge the world. He's going to judge his people. And so he is the one who is going to judge the world at the end. The very one that we are to live for now and suffer for now and the one that we give up our lives for now, he is going to be the judge then. And he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. Now this is both positive and negative. There's rewards here and there's punishment here. Now, Jesus is often indicated in, in this gospel in Matthew that he's going to be the one that judges the world. Remember Matthew 7.21, where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, and that's referring to the judgment day, Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so the Lord Jesus himself is going to be the judge of those people on that day. Or in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so when Jesus returns, he's going to judge both the righteous and the wicked. True believers will not have to pay for our sins. Those have been forgiven at the cross, but, but there's still a judgment even for believers. And scripture is replete with, with this kind of a, a wording that, that there's going to be a, a repayment in the judgment at the end. And so Proverbs 24 and verse 12 says, if you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Jeremiah 17 and verse 10, the Lord himself, Yahweh, is speaking, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Or Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Or Romans 14 verse 12, which speaks even to the believer, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
Or 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Or in Revelation 22 and verse 12, behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And so even for the believer, there's a judgment of reward, but it also includes at the very minimum the loss of reward for our bad deeds. But our verse, it would seem, is more positive. It's not looking so much at the evil that we've done or the the bad that we've done, but it seems to be looking at the good that we've done. And there's an encouragement here to us in following Jesus. There is a reward for faithfulness. There is a reward for faithfulness, and it will be those who serve Jesus well in this age that will be rewarded. You see, He is going to come in glory. He's going to come in the glory of His Father, the glory of God. And He's going to come with angels, and and notice in our text, they are His angels. His refers to Jesus there, most likely. Jesus is angels. And he's going to acknowledge those who acknowledged him on earth. And he's going to reward those who followed him on earth as described in these verses. Now we could have called this final section, we could have called this the eschatological reversal as well. You see, our fortunes change at death. Whatever side of this equation you are on, and it's important that you know what side you're on, Whatever side you're on, there is going to be a change of fortunes in the end. Those who enjoy their good things now and live for the comfort and pleasure in this present world, they will forfeit their soul and they will be punished in hell. Whereas those who follow Jesus now, they're going to lose their life now, but even in that, they're going to find life as they serve the Lord and and their reward in heaven is going to be great. And so there's a, an amazing reversal at death, an eternal reward for those who follow Jesus Christ. Now I called this sermon the logic of discipleship. And Jesus gave us here three reasons to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. In the extraordinary reversal, we saw that if we don't follow Jesus, we're going to lose our life. And there's kind of, I think, two senses there again. There's, there's the sense in which we're going to miss out on the fullness of life. We're going to miss out on the abundant life of knowing and serving the Lord. But also, secondly, and, and more importantly, if we don't follow Jesus and give up our life for Him, we're going to lose our soul. And so those who try to save their life are going to lose their life. But on the other side, we saw the reversal. There's the promise of our Lord that if we lose our lives for His sake, We're going to find life. We're going to find abundant life now and the fullness of the experience of salvation in the future. And then secondly, in the economic recognition, we saw that even gaining the whole world isn't worth losing our soul over. And any price is worth the salvation of our soul. And so we need to count the cost and follow Jesus on his terms. That's the only safe bet that the Lord gives us here. We need to recognize that this world is passing away and eternity is coming. And then third, in the eternal reward, we were reminded that our great Lord Jesus Christ 
is going to come in the glory of His Father and He's going to reward us for our service to Him. And so if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you're not saved, and maybe some of you kids are, are here that, that aren't saved or aren't sure if you're saved, this is a call to you to follow Jesus Christ, to give up your lives for His sake, to decide today that you're going to follow Jesus Christ and give your life to Him and serve Him and, and pursue this fullness of life that He has promised us in Him. And if you are in Christ today, I think it's a good reminder for us that, that what we're to do here, we're to, we're to give our lives for Jesus' sake. And so it's an opportunity, even as we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment, it's an opportunity for us to renew our commitment to giving our lives to Jesus Christ, to serving Him and glorifying God in that service. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank You for this passage, Lord. For the challenge it is, we, we ask that you would help us to do this. And we pray that, that by your divine grace, that you would make people willing to give up their lives, that they would see the greatness of Jesus Christ, even as they picture him coming in the glory of God with the angels. We, we pray that, that you would help us to see the greatness of Christ and the joy that it is to, to lay down our lives for his sake. For the sake of the one that laid down his life for us, help us to do it, Lord. Help us to forsake this world and live to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.